Has there ever been a moment in your life where you met somebody, and I'm not talking about like Michael Jordan or LeBron James, because we'd all like to be like them, right? I mean, who wouldn't? But has there ever been a moment where you met somebody else and you thought, if I could just, if I could just have peace like they have peace? Man, if I could just, if I could just have their ability to, to know exactly when to invest and what to invest in, if I could just have um, their ability to have joy no matter what's going on, if I could just be like them, man, that would be amazing. You ever had that? Do you have that person in your life like that? I remember in 1998, so some of you weren't born yet or were like three, that's fine. In 1998, I was doing an internship in southern Indiana, and uh, I got to stay the summer with a family whose name was the O'Shea's. And the O'Shea's were an amazing couple. They had uh, two boys or twins that were about my age, and so I kind of bonded with them over the summer a little bit, even though they weren't in the home anymore. They let me live in their home and be a part of their family. They gave me a bedroom, and I was 21, about to turn 22, but they gave me all the freedom of adult but they took care of all my needs. This is like the best of every world, right? And while I was with them, I got to see their heart and learn so much about them. So Mr. O'Shea had had some sort of tumor or brain cancer not too many more years before I'd met them. And part of his head was, it was concave, it was, it was kind of indented from where they had to go in and cut out part of his brain along with the tumor. Because of that, he kind of walked crooked. At times, he'd lose his balance. He'd be in the middle of a thought sometimes and forget what he was talking about. It was all as a byproduct of the surgery. But he was alive and he was doing well. There were other moments he'd be reading his Bible. He'd come in and be like, hey, Matt, 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 what do they teach in Bible college? Because I just read this passage and here's what I think. And I'd be like, dude, you nailed it. Like, you don't even need me to tell you anything more. You nailed it. And it was just amazing to watch um, this amazingly strong, godly woman love and serve her husband and uh, kind of with the unique challenges that they had, and it was just a blessing to watch their relationship. But one of my favorite moments was a Saturday afternoon, and there was nothing going on to the church I was interning at, and I remember sitting there. She'd made these lemon muffins. I didn't even like lemon. Oh my goodness, now I loved it ever since then. These muffins were amazing. They were fresh out of the oven, put some real butter on. I can still remember the smell today. And we sat there just talking about whatever, life, and I asked a question, something about what was um, the most rewarding season of your life or something like that? Now, I thought what I was going to get was either right before the surgery took place, you know, God showed up and did all these things, or afterwards, since then, they've learned about all the important things in life. It wasn't anything like that at all. She looked at me and she said, I'll never forget. There was a season of our lives many, many years ago. Our kids were small. And again, their sons were about my age in their early 20s. So it was decades before. We were really, really poor. In fact, it was Christmas time and we had no money for presents. I did not see this coming. And she said, I'll never forget it because that Christmas we each bought each other one present and it was only what we needed. Now, most of us in this room can't even understand that. Some of us, we have stories or moments or times or seasons in our life or maybe your life today. I remember her going on to say, My husband needed a razor so bad that I bought him one for Christmas. And I kind of started envisioning, you know, for me, I buy a razor. I usually use a razor until it starts to cut me and then I throw it away, right? What is it like to keep that going? Now, I tend to shave a couple times a week. I get creative with my facial hair, whatever I could do just to get by, to shave as little as possible. Any other men in the room? But see, he came from a different generation. You shaved every day, period, because that's what you did. And I thought, what was it like through November and December 
to try to drag that razor out to make it work. And then Christmas Day to get a razor. And I said, why was that like the best season ever? She said, there was something special about that Christmas. Because we weren't distracted by the presents. We weren't distracted by all the stuff that we had and were giving to each other. It was just about being with each other and honoring Christ. Man, I sat there and I thought, I want to be like you when I grow up. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to, I'm 21. Like, I, haven't, I clearly haven't grown up yet. So that's a good lead-in because they became one of my heroes, and that's a setup for where we're going today. Last week, Todd spoke for us. Didn't he do a fantastic job? Seriously? Man. I was sitting out there worshiping with you. I was totally convicted about stuff my wife needed to do. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> just joking. And uh, she's not in here. So uh, what I want to do is I want to pick up partially, partially over what Todd covered because it's the foundation that we're standing on today. So go now, Philippians chapter 4, take a look with me at verse 10. Verse 10. Here's what Paul writes to this church in Philippi. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. You may be going, what in the world is going on? Well, the guy writing this letter, his name is Paul, and he's writing to a church that's located in the city of Philippi. That's where we get the name Philippians. Philippi is a Roman military outpost that's in an area known as Macedonia. And it's one of the major cities of ancient kind of Greco-Roman world. It's a major cultural area. There's lots of temples to the false gods and goddesses of ancient Rome. We would call them Greek or Roman mythology today, but back then they worshiped them as real gods. And there's this little church that launches in this town. Now what's going on is this little church that launched is uh, always been a partner of Paul's. If you go back to chapter 1 of Philippians, he commends them for that. You have always been a partner in advancing the gospel or in sharing the gospel or in helping other people understand that God loves them. You've always partnered with me in that. But now Paul is writing them this letter and he's in prison somewhere else. And in prison, he's really been struggling. In fact, go back and read chapter 1 and 2. You find a Paul who's kind of frustrated because he's alone, and none of the believers have come to him to encourage him, support him, or bring him resources. But finally, the Philippian church has done this. And so he's commending them, and he's saying, look, I know you were concerned about me. You just didn't have a chance to do anything about it, and now I've received a gift for you, and I just want to say thanks. Take a look at verse 11. Not that I was ever in need, because I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I love this kind of verse because Paul didn't have an eraser. So, you know, you write, you mess up, you erase, you white it out, you delete it nowadays. Does anybody even use white out today? Whatever. You delete it. Paul couldn't do that. So if he wrote something and wanted to clarify, he just had to add a second sentence. And he did. So he's going back and he's saying, I had a need and you met it. Thank you. Wait, wait, wait. Let me just be clear. I never really had a need need. I just had a need. You know, you know that kind of conversation? I was never actually like in need. What he's saying is, I was poor, I was hungry, I was lonely, I was destitute, but I had Christ. I was okay. But you still sent me a gift, and I just want to say thanks. 
Now this little word here, content, in the Greek is an interesting word. So when we're translating from one language into another, what we do is we do our best to take the equivalent in our language that captures the meaning in their language. But this little word here is full of meaning in Paul's culture that it wouldn't have in ours today. Because this word content literally is used by the Roman Greco philosophers to describe a, a worldview or the way to look at the world. And here's the way that world looks. Life happens. Get over it. So this little word content in Greek literally means this. When things happen in life, it is the fate of the gods. Absolutely nothing you do can affect the fate of the gods. So therefore, move on. Now, Paul uses this exact same word here, and it's not an accident. He's writing to a group of people who've been trained in Greco-Roman philosophy, and he's saying to them, you have this worldview, but look at the very next verse. Verse 12. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned... The secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Why? For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. What's he saying? You have been taught your whole life. The life just happens. You can't change it. Get over it. I'm telling you, life happens. God knows, and he'll give you everything you need to get through it. It's a complete reorientation, a complete different way to look at the world is what Paul is telling them. Yes, life happens. Yes, people do things. Yes, people lose jobs. Yes, people get sick. Yes, cancer in the brain happens. However, God will give you everything you need through Christ. So then what? Look at the next verse. 14, even so you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. What's Paul trying to say? Because you understand that Christ is with you, you understand that Christ is with me, you have chosen to come alongside me and help me. You didn't just view this as, well, life happens, suck it up, buttercup. You viewed this as life happens, and we can do something about it. It's different. Do you believe that you have the ability to do something about other people's suffering? Better question. Do you believe that God has uniquely positioned you in the lives of other people to help them in their suffering? Now, that kind of concludes the verses that, that Todd covered last week. Let's take a look at now how Paul builds on that idea and moves into this concept. Look at this. In verse uh, 15, 15. As you know, you Philippians, were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. What Paul is starting to get to is he's about to do this thing that we in America would say, you can't do that. You can't compare your kids. That's not good. Well, it is if one of them is working hard and one of them is being lazy. It is if one of them is succeeding, not by sheer talent alone, but by effort. Yeah, I can look at one of them and tell you you're, you're ugly. Okay, maybe we should go that far. But I can look at one and make an illustration 
Paul is about to do this. He's laying a foundation here. He's saying to this church of Philippi, and I want you to get this. So Philippi is a city in Macedonia. I told you that. But he's telling them, when I left Philippi, you were the only church in the entire region who supported me. At first, as I moved on from here and I went to Berea and I went to Galatia and I went on to Thessalonica, the other cities in Macedonia, as I took the gospel there, you helped me. You funded my ministry so that I could continue to tell other people about Jesus. And I just want to say thanks. Now, why is he reminding them of this in closing here? Because he's about to make a comparison. Nobody else did this but you. He's not telling him you should be puffed up with arrogant pride. He's saying, I just want to say thanks. Because when I was out of resources, you made sure the ministry didn't stop. So then what does he say next? Verse 16, even when I was in Thessalonica, that's where we get the book First and Second Thessalonians. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help how many times? Wow. Now you go back to chapter 1 and it makes sense then that Paul really believes they are his partners. They are sharing, sharing in his ministry. That word sharing means the same thing really in his culture that it means in ours today. Think about it. If you go to, I don't know, if you go to NASDAQ and you invest in a company and you buy what in the company? Shares. Thanks for helping me out. Stocks, yes, they're shares. Maybe I'm wrong and I don't know how to invest. Maybe you should not give me your money. You buy shares in a company. What are you doing? You're giving them your money in order for them to go take and invest to give you a greater return, right? That's what hopefully is going to happen. Not always, but that's what you're hoping will happen. Paul is saying the same thing. I went out and you shared, you took part, you gave in the ministry so that I could make a greater investment for you. But think about it. Did Paul ever come back with more money to give to the church in Philippi? So what was the payoff on the investment that Paul was referring to? People. Because of your generosity, people's lives were changed. I multiplied your dollars because you continued to partner with me. Look at verse 17. Now, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. In other words, I'm not manipulating you. I'm not setting you up. I'm not telling you how great you were in the past because I want you to give me more money. No, rather, I just want you to receive a reward for your kindness. Now, this idea is so throughout Scripture from beginning to end, but we don't know what to do with it today because there have been so many religious teachers who have abused texts like this that guys like me are often afraid to talk about this very real biblical concept, and that is this. If we make an investment in God's kingdom, there is a payoff, but the payoff isn't always financial, though God does promise to provide for those who trust him. However, the payoff is in lives. And see, when we abuse that, and I know of missionaries going into very poor countries who are bringing all their hoopla with them and their fancy outfits and everything else, and they go to these very poor countries and they preach a gospel that says, and if you give me your money, you will be blessed like me. And they look at the American church and all of our resources and they think, man, they just must be so blessed by God. They don't know the challenges we face. But they've bought into a gospel that's different than the gospel that Paul preached, that Jesus preached. A gospel that says, yeah, you're going to be blessed for investing in God's kingdom. However, the blessing's going to come primarily, primarily through lives being changed. Now, this is fascinating to me. 
what Paul is saying here then, I want you to hold this Philippian church, and he's going to take this Philippian church, and he's going to go compare them to their other brother. Not that you should do this as a parent, I just want to show it to you. All right, so I want you to open with me now. Keep your finger here because we're going to come back to this. Open with me now to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you uh, have a, uh, a phone or a, a tablet that has an app store, you can download the Kingsway Church app. You'll find all these notes in there. You can follow on the screen or you can look it up. However you want to get there, we're good to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verse 1 now. Now, Paul is writing to the church in the city of Corinth. So when the original, Acts 16, he leaves this Macedonia area, he goes all throughout, starts churches, then he heads on down to Corinth, and he starts a church there. Now, as he's moved on, he's writing a letter back to the church in Corinth. In Philippians, he's writing a letter back to the church in Philippi. Here we get to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. That bought you enough time, I hope. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done to the churches where? In Macedonia. So who's he talking about? Philippi. Now he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, now I want you to know about what God is doing somewhere else. Again, as parents, you're told, don't do this, right? But when you're celebrating the grace of God, and by the way, the word grace in Greek comes up 10 times in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. 10 times. Why? Because Paul wants the church in Corinth to know that generosity is a grace. So when you're talking about the grace of God, and you're not talking about the efforts of men, then, oh yeah, you could compare all day long because you're just telling a God story. Look at what he says. They, verse 2, are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. Well, we didn't really know that about them. Throughout the book of Philippians, he doesn't really tell us that. But if you go back to Acts chapter 16, and we talked through this at the beginning of the series, in Acts 16, when Paul started the church, I mean, he and Silas are beaten, uh, uh, severely thrown in prison, put in shackles. And that is just an experience that represents what the rest of the Philippian church went through. So part of what he's doing here to the church of Corinth, he's saying, you know, you and Corinth, you got it pretty easy. You're not under the intense persecution that the churches in Macedonia had. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul is laying into them. You guys have some of the best teachers around. You guys have spiritual gifts in abundance. You guys have money and wealth and freedom to worship. These churches in Macedonia, they're experiencing intense troubles. Not only that, but they were desperately poor. But he says, but they are also filled with with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. What Paul is doing for the church in Corinth is he's holding up the Philippians like the O'Shea's for me. And he's saying, man, I want you to look at them and desire to be more like them. I want you to pursue what they have. Because though they had very little, though it was difficult, they desired to be generous. Now, I want you to get this, because what Paul does here is a typical Hebrew thing. So he makes point one, and then down here he compares it to point, so like 1A and 2A, and then 1B and 2B. So 1A is this, they have many troubles. 2A is this, but they're filled with abundant joy. So even though life is hard and stressful and painful and it's difficult to be a Christian, they have joy. In other words, they have joy even though it's hard. And even though they're very poor, point 1B they're still very generous. Why is he doing this? 
because he's holding them up as an example. And he, in some ways, he's rebuking them. He's correcting them. He's not shaming them. He's not, uh, he's not trying to look at them and create jealousy. He's looking at them and saying, you can do better. Step up your game. Come on. In fact, as we keep reading, you're going to see he's saying to them, I'm coming to you and I'm bringing some of them with me. And I'm so afraid that I'm going to show up in your church with some of them and they're going to see how you're doing and I'm going to be embarrassed as your spiritual father that what they'll see. Please don't let me be embarrassed. That comes out in the rest of these two chapters. Jump down with me. or Actually, we'll just keep reading. Sorry, verse 3, verse 3. He says this, I can testify... In other words, trust me, I've seen it myself. I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And apparently they never talked to Dave Ramsey. Now, that was a joke. Apparently not a funny one. Dave Ramsey has done a lot to teach me about money. He's helped me tremendously. Highly recommend Financial Peace University. But what they do here goes against all conventional wisdom. What he's saying, guys, is the church in Philippi, they gave more than they even had resources for. They go, how do you do that? I read stories like this, and I go, I want to be like that kind of person. And here's what I know. The only way you can give money you don't have, you can't go into debt. You can't literally pull out a credit card. They didn't have a credit card. There is no way they could have accomplished what Paul said here unless they viewed everything they had as an opportunity to advance the gospel. The only physical way they could have accomplished this is for them to literally take family heirlooms and whatever it is, you know, jars or land or things they had, they were given. It's not literal money, and they sold it. Or they said, you know what, we're going to eat less so we can buy less, so we can give this money to other people to take to Paul to advance the kingdom. And apparently the church in Philippi, check this out, they did it of their own free will. What that means is Paul or Timothy or Silas or Paphroditus, we're going to read about him in a minute, they, they never showed up and said, you guys need to do this. Somehow word got back to the church in Philippi of what was going on, and the church of Philippi said, can we take part? Please let us take part. And Paul and his companions said, no, you guys don't have any money. And they said, don't you dare withhold from us the opportunity to take part because you don't think we have money. You don't believe me. Look at the next verse. Verse 4. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Could you imagine this scenario? Okay, seriously, American church. Could you imagine a scenario where a group of people, let's say I stand up and I start talking about money, and the people start begging me, let us take part. And I know their story. You can't take part. I know what you're going through right now. You can't do it. And they look at me and say, don't you dare withhold from us the opportunity to take part in what God's doing. I'm going to Ramsey said. Could you imagine a church like that? I can. I really can. Because I've met so many people here who are truly generous beyond sometimes what's wise. I literally know men and women in this church who are constantly wrestling with, should I sell my house a downsize? Should I get rid of my nice car and buy a cheaper one? Should I do something radical? Because at the end of the day, it all stays here anyway, but the lives, the lives that I could invest in through this church and through our missionaries, and they're going to be with me in heaven forever. 
And this isn't a guilt trip, it's just a challenge because nobody gives out of guilt or compulsion. Everybody gives out of choice. We all do it. So about a year ago, uh, there was a group of us meeting, and we started planning uh, a new ministry here at Kingsway. Uh, our hope is to launch this new ministry in January, kind of internally to a select group, train each other, kind of get it, some of the wrinkles worked out, and then to go public to the rest of you. I can't wait. I can't wait. I don't know when it's going to happen. It's probably still a year away from you getting to hear about it. I'm just kind of telling you about it as we go. This, God birthed this dream in my heart about five years ago, but we didn't have uh, the right structures in place. We didn't have the right abilities at the time. And so last fall, I just grabbed some people and I said, we need to do this. I'm telling you. So here's the ministry in short order. I continue to meet men and women in our church who come from extremely painful backgrounds. They have been abused. They, they've been in a family or a marriage where, where the, the person in their family or marriage has so greatly sinned, their sin has impacted them. We've got abuse, emotional, physical, uh, even sexual. It's just a tremendous, and they carry this burden of anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and the wounds that have been created by other sin. And I keep meeting people, and I'm going, we need a platform. We need a place where these people can meet Jesus and get some healing. But in addition to that, I keep meeting the other people. I keep meeting men and women who are truly not just struggling with sin. They've camped out in sin, and it's just owning them, whatever it is, drugs, alcohol, pornography, I mean, you name it. And some of you are sitting here right now, and I keep saying, we got to find a place. And I found a ministry where uh, they just create this environment where men and women, separately, men get together, women get together. And just for, for a couple months, they, they, they meet and they work through some material as they begin to uh, process what God is doing and how God wants to free them both from the sin and from the burdens that other people's sin has created. But here was the problem. About a year ago, I'm pulling together the staff and some other people, and we just didn't have the money. And we still don't have the money. And I went to Brad and I said, Brad, here's what our research has said. Brad's our, our, our executive administrator. Uh, he oversees our budget and all of our operations team does a great job. I said, the, the, the research we've done says we need $3,000 so that we can train either men or women. We need $6,000 to train both. It's going to take $3,000 for two men and $6,000 for two men and two women we can't do 3000 for one man and one woman unless we find a husband-wife combo because they're going to have to share a hotel room to save resources. And that's like setting yourself up to fail. So not a good idea. And, and Brad said, Matt, I hear your passion. I hear the need. We don't have the money. But I tell you what, if you tell me, if you tell me we have to do this, I'll find a way to make it happen. Now, I don't know what find a way to make it happen means, but Brad's good. And he'd have found a way. And what I said is before we do that, Brad, let me just go to my men's group. I have a men's group. I have one right now. I had one last year. And let me just go to them and throw out the need to just see what they say. So I went to them, and I just cast the vision. And I said, guys, 3000 for this, 6000 for that. Here's the thing. Here's how much I'm going to give. Above what I already give to the church, above what I give to missionaries, above all those other things we do, here's how much Rachel and I have prayed about it, and here's how much we're going to give. Would you just talk to your spouses if you're married, and would you pray and ask what God is telling you to give? Again, 3000 for this, 6000 for that. I was hoping we would get at least half of 3000 I said, I'm not going to tell anybody in the group what everybody else gave because this isn't, a, this isn't a contest of who's going to give more. I just want you to pray. <laughs> so they did. I gave them a deadline of a couple weeks. And over the next couple weeks, guys that said, talk to, my, talk to my wife. Here's how much we're going to give. Or, hey, Matt, you know, single guy, here's how much I'm going to give. Guess how much was gave? 
$1,000 to the penny. Yeah. Now you may be sitting there going, well, that would have been cooler if you have said 20000 Listen, here's the thing I'm learning about God. God rarely gives you abundantly more than you need. Why? That's dangerous. There's a passage actually in the Proverbs, I believe it's in the Proverbs, where uh, Solomon writes, Lord, do not give me more than I need or I'll be tempted not to need you. But please don't give me less than I need or I'll be tempted to steal. There's something about the provision of the Lord being exactly what you need in the moment that you need it. And what happens in that moment when it happens? You know where it came from, don't you? You know exactly who provided, exactly when he provided. You know exactly how he showed up. You know exactly. You can't say, well, I worked hard or I figured this out or I did this. It's like, no, God did this because he's a good, good father. Take a look at what Paul is saying. Verse 5, they even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. What does this mean? This means that the church in Philippi as well as some of the other Macedonian churches, they determined the very first thing they're going to do is give God all of themselves. And then from there, whatever God wanted to do, he did, and they just obeyed. We've talked a lot over the years here, for those of you who've been at Kingsway, about a tithe. A tithe is 10% of your income. And it's taught throughout the scriptures, New Testament and Old Testament. The problem with a tithe, guys, is that it gives you a marker like, whew, I crossed a line. And the Bible doesn't really teach specifically in the New Testament a tithe. What it teaches is it's all God's. And the thing, the example that Paul's using is when you decide what you're going to give and how you're going to give, look at Christ. On the cross, did Jesus pour out 10% of his blood? I sure hope not, because my wife and kids need at least 40. I mean, again, they're not in here. We're safe. I, did, I thought that was way funnier than you just gave me credit for. <laughs> Apparently, you're on her side. I'm just kidding. Jesus didn't pour out just 10%. He poured out everything. Now, is the point then to go sell everything you own and give it to the poor, like Jesus said to the rich young ruler? I had somebody ask me about this recently. I don't believe the New Testament example follows that principle. I'll show it to you in just a moment throughout Corinthians. But the New Testament example is simply this. Hold your hands open to everything you have and say, God, everything I have is yours anyway. Now, this is kind of silly, right? Imagine this. It's Christmas time. Your kid has no job, and they come to you and say, Dad, can I have 10 bucks? Sure, why? Because I want to buy you a Christmas present. And you know they're going to get you some ugly tie that you're going to be stuck wearing to work on Monday, right? But you give them the 10 bucks, and they go buy you a present. Now, whose money did they spend? Your wife's. I know, I get it. But <laughs> this is what we do with God. Are we giving him our money? No, of course not. Does he need the money to buy new things? Of course not. That's crazy. But what does God do with what we give him? He gets our heart. Jesus actually goes as far as to say this. Wherever your heart is, I'll find your treasure. So you could literally cut a little box in your chest. That'd be weird. Don't really do this. You could open it up. You could adapt, attach a chain to your heart and your wallet. And I could tell you exactly where your heart is by wherever this wallet goes. 
If I were to be allowed to look into your spending and see where you're investing your money, I could tell you right away who you love. And that should be terrifying for some of us. I am terrified every time I do taxes and find out how much I spend on things that I don't need. And then God convicts me again, and he says these things. And I want you to look down with me now to verse 12. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it what? Eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Well, Paul, you're confusing me. You just said the Philippians gave more than they had. Again, Paul's not trying to lay out some black and white standard. He's trying to get your heart. And if you're hung up on dollar signs, then you're missing the point of everything Paul and I and hopefully God is trying to say to you today. God wants your heart. And when God has your heart, then you can simply pray and say, God, what do you want me to give? And then when God tells you to give it, it doesn't matter how big or small it is. You say, okay, I'm just going to walk in faithfulness to you. The problem at the end of the day is not money. The problem at the end of the day is faith. Do you trust God to provide? I've been studying Exodus for this ministry that I just told you about that we want to launch because it's kind of based around the story of Exodus. And there are these moments in Exodus that are mind-boggling to me. God has the Israelites. They're wandering around in the desert. You ever been thirsty in a desert? In high school, my family, my parents took us to uh, Las Vegas, and I fell asleep at the pool. It was 105, 109, something like that degrees that day. I woke up two hours later, baked and dry as could be, not, not an ounce of sweat on my body, only salt all over me. I got up, and I, didn't, I couldn't walk. I was dizzy. I went up to the hotel room in the elevator. I thought I was going to throw up. I opened the door to the hotel room, and it collapsed on the floor. Literally, army crawled to the tub, turned on the tub, and just started drinking water. I was seriously dehydrated I passed out there kind of slept on the floor I know this is gross it's Vegas like I need quarantined you know <laughs> bathed in acid or something I woke up I drank more water I fell asleep again it just happened over and over and over again I thought I was going to hurl right there I was severely dehydrated God led the Israelites through a desert for 40 years and every once in a while they would get desperate and he looked at them at one point and they're crying out God we're thirsty now, why did God let them get to the point where they were desperate? So they would know where their provision was going to come from. And then he tells Moses, go strike that rock, and water comes flying out of the rock. It's a miracle. But God had to lead those Israelites to the point where they trusted that he would provide. It was a faith-building exercise. It shouldn't surprise us then. In Deuteronomy, I always forget where this is. I want to say it's Deuteronomy 9. God, please let me be right, but I could be wrong. In Deuteronomy, God says to the Israelites at one point, he's frustrated at them because they don't trust him. And he says, have you not noticed while you've been out here wandering in the desert for years and years and years that not once your sandals have worn out? Have you not, has it never dawned on you once that your clothes don't have holes in them? I mean, have you been out here for decades, decades with the same clothes and shoes on? It never once dawned on you that the reason all of this was taken care of is because I was miraculously holding it together? Has it ever dawned on you that maybe the reason everything in your life is working out okay is because God is taking care of you? And when you believe that God is taking care of you, then you say, you know what, God, everything I have is yours anyway. If it breaks down, you're going to take care of it. If it works, it's all from you. So God, how do I honor you with what I have? And with that kind of thinking, look at what he says to them. Look at verse 13. 
Of course, I don't mean that your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and you can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. What Paul's trying to say is, believer, when you see that there's a need somewhere else, you can give generously, you can give freely, and you should give sacrificially. Step up and meet the need and then just trust God's going to take care of you one day, maybe even through them. And then he says this. Look at chapter 9 now, verse 6. And I want you to get this. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Now, he's using an analogy that would be common to all of them. Where do seeds come from? The crop. So what Paul's saying, let's say you have five seeds, and you go out into a field, and you're like, okay, Lord, I need corn. Let's say you go, okay, well, I need corn. I only have five seeds. I'll, I'll, I'll just take one and plant it, and we'll see what happens. Paul's saying, that's crazy. At best, if God blesses, you're going to get one stock. Do you trust that God's going to bless? Yes, then don't put in two. Just go ahead and throw out as many seeds as generosity leads you to throw out. And trust, the more seeds you throw out, the better the return. So even if you only get 20% return, you put one seed in, your odds aren't real good. But you get 20% return, you put 10 seeds in, your chances of getting two are pretty good. So the more seeds you throw out, the better the opportunity. But then there's a double kind of entendre in here. There's a double meaning in this. Because if the, if the seeds come from the crop, then the more seeds you throw out, the greater the crop. The greater crop, the greater more seeds. The more seeds that come, the more you can plant next time. And it's called multiplication. This is a faith-building step where God says, if you are willing to trust me to provide, then be generous and just watch me blow your socks off of what I do to create generosity in others. Look at the rest of this little chunk, and we're almost done, I promise. Verse 7, verse 7. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, even if Matt's sermon is really good. Paul, it's in the Greek. Because <laughs> God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So God has given you everything you need so you can share with others. And when you start to give, Paul says, be happy that you're giving and knowing that even if it creates a gap, God's gonna fill the gap so that you could be more generous. In 2014, my family went through a situation I don't really feel like I could talk about privately. It's a little too intimate, but it created a very difficult financial situation for my wife and I. And I was praying and fasting in that season as we were going through the Circle Maker book. And I told part of the story. God answered part of that financial need. I was in a car accident like a week later that no one got hurt but provided some of the resources we need to, to pay for the stuff that we were in trouble with. Man, I tried every way to manipulate and control God after that. I'm not going to lie. I just did. You know, money has this way of messing us up. And so I kept, like, trying to, like, maneuver things and make things happen, and nothing was happening, nothing was happening, nothing was happening. And one day, a friend of mine who we've been supporting for years as a missionary in Africa, he wrote an email just updating us on the mission, and, he, and they said at the end of their email, hey, just let us know how we could pray for you. I was at the office. It was, like, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and I got the email, and so I just wrote back, hey, just pray for us, and I told them what was going on. 
about two or three weeks later, I got a $2,000 check in the mail from my missionary friend. And I just started crying. Here I was for weeks trying to manipulate and control and, and get things to happen, and it wouldn't work. And my friend, who I've been supporting, giving him food to eat, writes me a check. I told my wife, I can't take it. I'm going to rip it up, throw it away. She said, how dare you? If God has stirred in them a desire to be generous to us, how could you look at your, your friend and steal the opportunity for him to do that? How prideful. Who told you to say these things? I'm the man in this house. And she's right. And then I told my friends that, and they were out here recently visiting, and I almost gave it back, and they said, thank you for letting us take part in your lives and your ministry. All I know is if you seek the heart of God, he's going to mess you up. But he's going to mess you up good. And God continues to reveal to me just how much he wants my heart. Last thing, I promise. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Verse 18 to 20. Paul says, at this moment, I have all I need and more. Why? Because they gave. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent with Epaphroditus. That's a guy they sent to him. So they sent people and money. He says, they are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. What's Paul trying to say? You gave sacrificially yet again to meet my needs and just have confidence God's going to fill the gap. I don't know how, I don't know when, but he's going to. And then he closes with worship. Verse 20. And now... All glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Why is Paul praising God? Because Paul trusts that God is going to meet everybody's need. So everybody could take a deep breath and relax. Let's thank our Heavenly Father for being good. And this morning... As we take communion, here's all I ask of you, okay? Just don't start rustling yet. Communion servers, you can go. Listen, listen. I want you to thank God for his generosity. He didn't just pour out 10%. He poured out his own life. And then I just want you to say, God, how much do you want me to give in response to your faithfulness? If you're married, whatever number God gives you, I want you to check with your spouse and say, okay, God gave me this number. Like, would you pray? Because I might be crazy. I don't know. And if you don't have the same number, then just commit to praying. We're going to pray for the next week. God, we're going to ask that you get us on the same page. One of you might be hard-hearted and not hearing the Lord. One of you might be hearing from Satan who's trying to do something else in you. I don't know. So pray the Lord. And when you get on the same page, give whatever he tells you to give. I'll tell you this. We have dreams at this church that go beyond our resources. We always do. But I know God's going to give it when he's ready. And then we'll move. Let's pray. Father God. We thank you for being a good father. Lord, I thank you that right now you are actually stirring in people's hearts. You've been blessing some men and women in this church with money, and they didn't know why. They were trying to figure out what else to buy, another boat or another house or another vacation. Now they're hearing this and wondering if they can do something else, something more significant with it. 
God, there are men and women in this church who struggle. They're, they're, they're like Philippi. They're, they're really struggling financially, but they're so convicted, Father, they want to do more. And I don't know how, but I know you're going to meet their need. I know you're going to show up. So God, I just pray, this is my prayer. God, would you help us to just trust you? God, right now, I need this. I am praying this for me. Help me just to trust you. To take a deep breath and to watch you work. We love you. In Jesus' name.